I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Shrimpston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Welcome to another episode of Undercurrents. Ben, you have returned from down under. I am back. You are back. I am the right way up. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a relief. Oh my god, that's a terrible joke. <laughs> I really laughed at that. Great. You did. You didn't see it coming. You didn't see it coming. I see, didn't. that's what you've missed. That's what you've missed. The bad dad jokes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I would say talking in here on my own is really not as much fun. Oh, it sounded like you had a great time. <laughs> yeah. Can I apologise to your you, girlfriend? You, <laughs> you seriously jeopardised my relationship. <laughs> Ella, I'm really sorry. accusations about me <laughs> gallivanting with Sydney barmaids. Well, I can assure you there were no Sydney barmaids. Yeah. Or Melbourne barmaids. Well done. Or Brisbane barmaids. I was going to say, didn't you go to Brisbane too? Anyway. I did, yes. Anyway, how was it? Oh, it was wonderful, yeah. Um, it was a really, really great trip. Excellent. Uh, really useful conference with work, with the International Affairs team. We all went out there for the IPSA World Congress, which is a big gathering of political scientists from all over the world. And uh, it was wonderful to meet many of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, then a lovely travel, a good travel. Yeah? yeah Did you see any animals? Around. Did I see any animals? Well, I'd say the bird life there is wonderful. Cracking, yeah. I can imagine, yeah. Serious. Just, just like, you know, the equivalent of pigeons are like these beautiful ibis-like creatures with huge long beaks. Yeah, everywhere. But anyway, I saw bats, absolutely ginormous bats. Love a bat. Huge bats. Yeah. Um, and possums and things just wandering around in the wild. Yeah, kangaroos. Awesome, awesome. Didn't see any kangaroos because I didn't really venture outside of cities. Right. Um, and I didn't go to any kind of sanctuaries or no. anything. But, so essentially I failed at that. Yeah. <laughs> um, in fact, I think probably the most notable thing was that I became wildlife. I became a person of interest because I was the only person in Sydney walking around in shorts and flip-flops. Um, right. How hot the, was it? In the it? height of the Australian winter. Yeah. It was 24 degrees. It was baking. All these Australians were walking around in there. Then it's been there. 36 here. <laughs> it was hot. And <laughs> I was struggling. I mean, I was a proper Englishman abroad. <laughs> I, was, I was bright red. Yeah. And I had these lovely shorts on. And um, were people pointing? all these people were just staring at me. They were wearing these big sort of woolen jackets and jeans. At 24? And all of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were like, this is freezing. What are you doing? Madness. So, so there we go. So, yeah, so I became the object of curiosity. Yeah. Uh, Which is the, how you like it, I really. went to Bondi Beach. I was the only one there. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Half the cafes were shut. The one that was open was like, you're not cold, mate. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm getting sunburned. <laughs> Excellent. So, uh, so, yeah, so it was all... Well, you've managed to miss the absolute horrendous heat wave that we've had. Yeah, apparently so. Apparently 36 so. degrees. That has meant that all the snakes have escaped which means I'm not sleeping, <laughs> yeah. to be honest. Did you read that article probably, in The Guardian? I've heard about it. I've been informed over... A, a woman in West Kensington woke up with a bloody cobra in her bed. I'm that's, not comfortable with this. you live in the West End. <laughs> Highgate's up hills. They can't get up there. Snakes can go up hills. <laughs> <laughs> it's like dogs can it's look up. It's more energy, isn't it? It's more energy. No. You've been on your exotic three-week holiday. I have. So me, next couple of weeks, very similar. Yeah? Scotland. Love then it. Wales. Love it. Then Scotland. Absolutely love it. Yeah. <laughs> you're, such, you're such a Celt, Agnes. <laughs> well, to be fair, Scotland your, is home. So I'm going home. Yeah. And then I'm going to a festival in Wales. Oh, lovely. Was... Did you see the best news story of the week? No. The Cairo Zoo. 
that had... No, I genuinely didn't. Oh, yes, they painted a donkey that looked like a zebra. <laughs> yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> You fooled me. I'm none the wiser. Really? I literally, I thought, why are they got a new story about a zebra? <laughs> to be fair, some of the stripes had started to slightly drip. I got bad eyesight. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've got terrible eyesight, but yeah. yeah. Um, I yeah. love that story. Great story. Great it's story. great. Wonderful stuff. But yes, but um, it, wasn't all, it wasn't all fun. I actually managed to visit our colleagues at the Lowy Institute in Sydney. And so I have an interview for you our listeners. <laughs> Brilliant. With who? Um, from Lowy, with a research fellow there called Richard McGregor, mm-hmm. who is an expert on China um, and also used to be the FT bureau chief in Washington and Beijing wow. at different times and is now based at Lowy. And uh, he's an Australian by birth, so we had a really interesting conversation about Australian foreign policy. Oh, interesting. And uh, their view of everything crazy that's going on at the moment mm-hmm. and uh, what their priorities are, what kind of keeps them up at night. Okay. Which was really interesting. Did you also have a row about cricket? Or was it okay? I did mention ball tampering a couple did you? of times, but he didn't respond <laughs> What that you well chaps get up to yeah. on your own is yeah, your exactly. own business. <laughs> <laughs> wow. This, this conversation's taken a turn. Um, Brilliant. Okay, yeah. great. So, yeah, so, but who did you speak to? So I spoke to Owen Grafham, who is the department manager in the Energy, Environment and Resources Department, about their moving energy initiative. So it's about refugees and their access to sort of energy and fuel, but also humanitarian agencies and maybe their responsibilities towards trying to make their fuel usage a bit more sustainable, yeah. Well, Let's have we a shan't bore you any longer. <laughs> Let's have a listen. So I'm here with Owen Grafham. Have I pronounced that correctly? Yeah, that was great, actually. Okay. Really good. So I was thinking, like, we were, maybe <laughs> it's like that weird English thing where it's actually like Gram. No, no, you did really well. Thanks. Yeah. Sorry. Um, who is the Department Manager for Energy, Environment and Resources Department here at Chatham House? And we're here to talk about energy and refugees. Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we going to talk about this? Well... I mean, I think I'd probably take you back a few years to the time when we were were starting this work, which was actually in 2014. And at the time, we uh, visited a few refugee camps in Jordan and other places and saw that energy wasn't being given the same type of treatment as other priorities, such as, you know, water, food. And on one level, you can you can understand that these things are about saving lives um but on the other you know we think energy is 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 pretty transformative you know you can't imagine going about your your day-to-day life without switching on a light or turning on your phone or driving your car or you know powering your business and so we've spent the last kind of four years or so as part of a consortium which includes energy for impact practical action uh, the norwegian refugee council unhcr and us um, really trying to to argue that the humanitarian system should pay more attention to energy and should build energy into into the way it thinks about um, delivering aid. So what? How how does the humanitarian system deliver energy at the moment? Like, yeah. In what sort of form is it? Yeah, good question. So we we did a, a piece of work back in in 2015 that was called Heat, Light, and Power for Refugees. That was essentially the the first 
study that mm-hmm. tried to map how much energy refugees around the world were using and how much it was costing them. Uh, and really the, the results of that were just, um, well, they revealed a huge uh, state of energy poverty of refugees and displaced people around the world. So uh, we saw 90% of those in camps without ac- access to electricity. We saw 80% of, of those same people cooking with the absolute most basic fuel you can imagine, so so just wood. Uh, and all of that has you know massive implications for for health and safety. So you know we're estimating that around uh, twenty thousand forcibly displaced people are dying prematurely each year as a result of indoor air pollution caused by breathing smoke from from fires. Um, we see lots of um, gender-based violence and protection issues when women and children have to go and gather firewood from outside the camps. Uh, and of course, you know when you're talking about flimsy temporary shelters uh, you're also dealing with huge issues of the cold uh, the cold kills people in a lot of uh, refugee settings and and heating is also a massive problem as well so yes we we saw this this massive massive state of of energy poverty and energy deprivation uh, and it it really uh, well encouraged us that, that we were doing something important and something worthwhile uh, and since then we've been uh, well, with our partners, we've been doing a lot of practical work on the ground, trying to test new solutions and I guess trying to trying to change the scenario as much as we can. And I guess the other thing that this really emphasised to us was that, that this was really just one part of the puzzle. So, um, you know, this this big report that we did, Heat, Light and Power, that, that showed how much energy refugees were using and how much they were spending. But it didn't show us the amount of energy that humanitarian agencies themselves were were using and spending. Um, and so for the last year or so, we've really been engaged in, in, a, in, a, in a new big piece of research that is looking at humanitarian agencies themselves and what they are spending and what they are using. Mm-hmm. And what are they using? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's okay, not but... wood, I presume. <laughs> no, it's not wood. No. I guess the humanitarian system is overwhelmingly reliant on, on diesel fuel. So... You know, we surveyed um, seven agencies in, in Kenya and found they were spending about $6.7 million per year on, on diesel. That's obviously a huge amount of money for a very small amount of, of humanitarian agencies, uh, and we see that as a really, really big problem. You know, if you look at the situation in, in South Sudan, for example, you have a number of the humanitarian agencies there are getting fuel delivered to... Um, Mombasa port in Kenya. It's then being driven 2,000 kilometres or so uh, to to the capital of, of South Sudan, Juba. And then in order to get the fuel to the camps in the north of the country, they quite often, um, when the, the Sud, the big um, kind of uh, marshy territory across the middle of the country is flooded, or when conflict is very high, they have to fly that fuel to the north of the country. So you're right. talking about absolutely huge expenses mm. just on transporting this fuel yeah quite incredible um, costs and obviously that that means the big opportunity for savings mm. as well i suppose that the nature of humanitarian agencies though is that they are dealing with situations that are unpredictable and can't really plan infrastructure around things yeah. so how how can you sort of look at energy in a way for those agencies that is sort of more structured yeah yeah you're absolutely right and this is a this is a key question i guess the humanitarian system is is obviously as you say set up to respond to emergencies um 
and and it, it's quite well organized to do that and it's you know it's it's saving lives it's doing important things on a day-to-day basis however what we've seen is that short-term emergencies often drag on and become protracted situations our research shows that the average age of a refugee camp is uh, is around 18 years Um, And obviously, when you're talking about doing things in an emergency way for that period of time, you're talking about hugely inefficient solutions. Um, Just another example, for example, in Jordan, um, throughout 2016, the refugee camps at the Berm, which is the border with Syria, they they were trucking water. Um, So like five to 13 litres of water a day. And the, the daily... Um, amount that you're supposed to get is 20 litres so it's still not enough Mm -hmm. but they were trucking this water uh, from the water treatment plant about 250 kilometres away to these camps at the the border on a daily basis 16 tankers every day so if you assume a normal efficiency of a tanker truck it's like 40,000 litres per month it's Mm -hmm. 20,000 US dollars just for the fuel alone Um, yeah you're talking kind of Mm. um, hugely problematic setups which if they are entrenched can be really expensive and and really really inefficient and i guess that's what we're trying to look at rather than the the emergency situation as such we're looking at what happens when something becomes a little bit more protracted or when something that was an emergency is now not well it is being extended into longer durations is there a gap of political will in some places for this because as soon as you sort of put good infrastructure into places, they become more permanent. And I would imagine there are some governments who don't really want camp refugee camps mm. in a more sort of permanent structured setup forever. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, are there some sort of probably politicians who actually don't want this to be made more efficient? Yes, I think that's mm. that's certainly a factor, and that's certainly something that has historically been. Uh, a problem not just for energy but also for other aspects of of of, um, emergency response like shelter you know putting up permanent shelters rather than temporary tent-like structures has been another big issue in the humanitarian sector because of this exact issue that you're raising here i guess you know what we would would say about energy is if you are able to deliver energy projects in humanitarian settings you're quite often able to deliver benefits to host communities as well as to refugees. Right. Because these, these, these camps, often often we're dealing with camps, they are, are serving a large amount of people. And people often don't realise that they're incredibly intertwined with local communities and local towns. So if you can put in a piece of infrastructure, like a solar farm, they have done that re- mm-hmm. recently in Jordan, that serves a refugee camp and serves a town, then the country's actually going to get a legacy asset after the, the refugees have, have hopefully returned to the, their country of origin. So we're trying to look at kind of win-win situations like that. Mm-hmm. And I guess even if you don't think about it like that, we would still argue that, that humanitarian agencies themselves have a duty to think about their own infrastructure mm. and their own methods of, of, of producing energy and their things that they can control quite easily. We, we think that actually, you know, looking after the environment, looking at the pollution, looking at the emissions that they're generating should really be a key aspect of the do no harm agenda for humanitarian agencies. And so we take it from both of those angles. And you sort of mentioned this at the beginning as well. But I mean, you're just competing 
against so many things, aren't you? You know, yeah. access to healthcare, access to safe water, access to food. And so how how can you sort of raise this up the priorities for, for both like humanitarian agencies and yeah. governments? I mean, this is this is the <laughs> the real crucial question <laughs> from our perspective. Um obviously it's not it's not nice to think in terms of priorities against water and shelter and health but sometimes you do have to think about how how your issue can be seen as as important as those things and i guess there's a couple of reasons that we would try to do that at this time one is uh because of the un's existing um commitments to carbon neutrality protecting the environments of the countries in which they work we think that they have a ready-made agenda for doing this and that really we just need to find ways to actually uh, embed that and make that happen. The The second point I would raise is that a lot of what the interventions that we're talking about are cost-saving measures. Mm -hmm. And so we see um, the energy interventions that we're pushing as being ways that the system can be made more efficient and can actually generate more revenue to deal with the people that it, that it needs to and wants to. In that sense, we'd say that, you know, it also intertwines with a lot of the kind of big picture UN measures that are happening at an international level. So, for example, the agenda for humanity is a, is a very big kind of UN push, um, which is about making the system more efficient. And we think that energy measures are, are something that should really be built into that. Um, the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework, the CRRF, is another big UN policy process. And that's really about thinking through ways that refugees can contribute to host countries to not be a drain on resources, but to be a kind of um, a skill or a kind of asset for, for host countries. And again, we see this as a, as a way of kind of pushing that agenda as well. So, you know, there's a number of things that we think are, are uh, in favour of energy and make energy something that the humanitarian system should pay attention to. So what are the solutions you're proposing then? What are, are there particular types of energy provided, like provisions that work better than others in these mm. situations? Yeah, I guess, you know, our, our forthcoming paper is going to make a, a whole bunch of recommendations for, <laughs> for agencies and for donors and for, for host country governments. But there's a couple of things I'd flag just here and now. And I guess one of them is that we really want humanitarian agencies to commit at the highest level to doing this and we as i've said we think that's in their mandate already but there are policy processes out there at the moment which they can get behind so for example the global plan of action for sustainable energy in settings of displacement um lots of catchy titles there's a catchy title yeah. yeah um but you know there's there's ready-made big picture processes which they can get behind which they can join with others who are also thinking about this issue uh, and it's it's an easy way for them to commit at the highest level the second thing that we'd say is that you have to collect data about this. So, you know, as, as the saying goes, it's very difficult to manage what you can't measure. And so you really need to understand what you're using uh, and where you're using it. And, and that ties into really the, the third and final thing that I'd say, that, you know, we can look for quick wins and humanitarian agencies should be looking for quick wins to show that the energy agenda is... Uh, important and show that it brings rewards to their organisations. So, for example, there was a recent study at the largest refugee camp in Tanzania, Nyaragusu, um, which showed that 60% of the diesel they were using was going on water pumping. Uh, at the same time, IOM and Oxfam showed recently that uh, investing in solar water pumping solutions in Uganda would pay back an investment within one year. 
uh, and that solar systems would cut would be about the one third of the cost of equivalent diesel solutions there. Mm-hmm. And you can see easily how those things come together. Yeah. Uh, and it really shows, uh, yeah, it's an example of how you can kind of do something very quickly, uh, make relatively modest investments, mm-hmm. see that investment come back to you very quickly and start generating savings immediately for your organization. After that, there's obviously a whole bunch of stuff you have to do about embedding long-term sustainability, long-term energy uh, policies inside your organization. But if we can start with those three things, then I think we're onto something. Brilliant. And speaking of upcoming paper, there is an upcoming paper (laughs) from the um, Moving Energy Initiative at Chatham House, which is written by you and your colleague, Glade Alarn. Brilliant. When's it going to be out, Owen? Uh, we're, we're thinking it's going to be out in September. September, okay. Yep. So yeah, have a look. Have a look for that when it's out on the website. Well, thank you so much, Owen. Thank you so much. Okay, so here I am in sunny Sydney, where I've been uh, for the last few days after the IPSA World Congress conference in Brisbane. I'm not missing London too much, I have to say. It's really rather nice down here. Um, And I'm here today at the Lowy Institute, which is a a major Australian think tank on foreign policy and international affairs. And I'm joined by Richard McGregor, who is Lowy's senior fellow for East Asia. He's also the former Beijing and Washington bureau chief for the Financial Times and the author of many books on Chinese politics. Richard, thanks very much for giving up your time today. Thanks for having me. Um, So I thought it would be incredibly interesting to talk about international affairs and basically what's going on in the world from the Australian perspective. How is Australia responding to all the challenges that we're facing at the moment? And I wondered whether we could just start by really asking what what are the foreign policy priorities for Australian policymakers? What do policymakers worry about? What keeps them up at night? Well, there's some obvious things that would keep them up up at night if they happened. I mean, instability in our near north, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, for example, they're the countries which are closest to Australia, uh, both very large populations, particularly Indonesia. That's a sort of stay up at night problem. Another potential issue is if we climate change manifests itself in the way that people suggest in the Pacific, we could have tens of thousands of sort of climate change refugees from Pacific Islands. They're the, they're some of the issues that people worry about. But if you're talking about big issues, it's really about US and China and the future of the Asia-Pacific region, because we truly are, I think, at an inflection point in the Asia-Pacific now, uh, with the US in relative decline, uh, China uh, on the rise. Mm. We've heard a lot about the Thucydides trap, Uh, You know, the idea that a rising superpower will sort of almost inevitably come up against or even uh, have a war with an established superpower. That's one way of looking at it. I think a much better way of looking at it is something else that Thucydides said, and that is about how it's difficult to build an empire or dangerous to build an empire. It's even more dangerous to give it away. Mm. And that's the kind of point we're at in the Asia-Pacific now. People aren't sure the US is staying. People, by the same token, don't trust China. And China, in my view, is not in a position to, you know, take America's place in Asia. I mean, I can expand on that if you like. It's not so easy to take America's place. You think about it, China has territorial disputes with Japan, uh, Indonesia, the Philippines, Vietnam, 
Brunei, Malaysia. This is the South China and East China Seas problems. America, for all its problems and for all its the sort of things it gets wrong, is a much more trusted power in Asia. Mm. So precisely at the time where Trump shows no interest in alliances, is can talk willy-nilly, I know he changes every five minutes, but can talk willy-nilly about leaving Japan, leaving South Korea and the like. And at precisely that sort of time, I think there's more demand, oddly enough, for the US to stay in Asia than there ever has been. But by the same token, you know, Trump in his campaign and in his statement since then has sort of hit on something, and that is, you know, why can't Asia be run by Asians? What is the US, you know, why is the US still the essential power in Asia more than 70 years after the Second World mm. War? Yeah. And that's something we're all coming to grips with, uh, as well as coming to grips with China, which of course dominates the region economically. Uh, and is now sort of moving up the scale politically. That actually leads me on to a question that I was sort of wondering was, how does Australia position itself? Because obviously geographically it's, it's, it's in the Asia-Pacific region, but does Australia think and act like an Asian power or does it see itself as kind of part of, in inverted commas, the West? if that's a dichotomy that we even accept. Well, that's a hardy perennial for us, and it's been um, you know, around as long as I've been alive, and I, I can tell you I'm much older than I look, I think. <laughs> um, and you know, there, there was many formulations of it. You know, we used to think of ourselves as the odd man in rather than the odd man out. Mm. And so I think we've always tried to make sure we're part of all sort of regional institutions, so we do have a seat at the table, whatever happens. In the 1990s, when we had the sort of Asian values movement, which really came out of, you know, Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew, <clears throat> uh, Mahathir Mohammed, who's now made a comeback in Malaysia. And that was really a worrying time because in many respects, that looked like, you know, when the US at the start of the 90s was in decline and the sort of Asians were going to take over uh, and run the region themselves. And at the time, uh, the then Pres Prime Minister of Malaysia, President Mahathir, you know, had this idea of a East Asian caucus, which did not have Australia, New Zealand and the US as members. People used to talk about that as the caucus without Caucasians. Now that went by the board, the US came back, uh, Japan or elements of Japan, which was very powerful and which were leading an Asian resurgence. Japan, yeah. of course, went into decline. 20 years later or so now, it's China that's uh, the dominant Asian country. It's China that is the dominant economic power. It's China that's the dominant military power, or increasingly so uh, in Asia, almost butting up against the US. And so we're back at another point in time um, when, you know, maybe China will run the region instead of America. Maybe China will be the most powerful country uh, instead of America. And we're all trying to grapple with that at the moment. Now, Australia is Australia an Asian country. You know, we've had various times when people have attempted to say we're an Asian country. And people used to make many jokes about that. There used to be a rather rotund Australian opening batsman, David Boone, who had a thick moustache and was famous for drinking lots of beer. And when he used to walk out to bat, people would say, well, there's the famous Asian opening batsman, David Boone. Now, obviously, that's <laughs> ridiculous. Um, but I think, you know, we want to get beyond whether we're Asian or not. We are, in many respects, economically there in all our security interests, just most of our security interests are in the region. But, you know, you look at most Australians, they don't look what you would think an Asian person would look like, sure. you know. 
So there's some sort of racial divide, and there has been a racial divide in Australia as well, because obviously we have quite you know a racist history, the founding of the country. We had a colour bar effectively in immigration to 1965-1972. But that's all changing now. Uh, Australia is a very different country, and I don't think we really need to get into this thing about whether we're, we're Asian or not, but simply, you know, become, you know, act as though we're part of the region, really. Mm. So I was just wondering whether we could talk a bit about the sort of current administration by uh, Malcolm Turnbull. What have they, what have been their main activities um, since uh, since Turnbull took office? What has been their kind of foreign policy stance? And has that been a, is that a question of change or is it generally sort of continuous from previous administrations? Well, there's, there's some continuum and there's certainly some bipartisanship in Australian foreign policy. I guess there's been uh, a, a number of big things that have happened. Um, uh, Australia has attempted to get closer to ASEAN countries, that is Southeast Asian uh, nations. Um, and in fact, Australia hosted an ASEAN summit earlier this year uh, in Sydney. That would have been, I think, unthinkable uh, 10 years ago. Part of the reason for getting um, closer to ASEAN countries is the struggle we've had with both our relations with China and the US in different ways. Uh, everybody is struggling with Mr. Trump. Uh, not just Australia, uh, and we've had to do our, I don't know how to phrase it differently than this, our fair share of sucking up to Mr Trump so we don't get slapped with tariffs and, uh, and the like as well. I wonder with Trump, and Trump is a, you know, a moving target, whether we're sort of moving from you know, forbearance to resistance, right. depending on his policies, and I think that's probably a debate going on in a lot of Western capitals. Mm. That's one part of it, but I guess the most newsworthy and most disruptive foreign policy event under Mr Turnbull's leadership has been the fracture in our relations with China. Now, we've often had difficult times with China in the past, that's kind of inevitable, but it's been much bigger under Mr Turnbull because he's taken up the issue of Chinese interference or influence operations in domestic Australian politics. And we've had a couple of big and noisy debates in Australia about that. Even if you've been here a short term, I, I guess you'd realise that it's a pretty bluntly speaking country. Sure. Yeah. And if you're going to push back against China, particularly the ruling party, the Chinese, Com uh, the ruling, you know, ruling Chinese Communist Party, there's no nice way of doing it. Right. And if it's happening in Australia, it's probably even less nice. So. At the moment, Australian and Chinese relations are politically frozen. Mm. And that's kind of weird if you think about it because they're our major economic partner by a long way. More than a third of our exports go okay. to China. Right. So why would a country rationally pick a fight with its biggest trading partner? But that's what's happened in mm. many respects. Now, I'm not saying it's all Mr Turnbull's fault. I think there's been some big rhetorical mistakes along the way. But it's almost like a fight we had to have or a debate we had to have. That might be a better way of push, yeah. putting it because in Australia we've had economic China for decades now. We've been very on, much on the front foot for a long time in that respect, particularly in exporting raw materials. Now we're getting political China. Not, okay. not nearly so pleasant. Uh, so a big Chinese community here, which some people believe that Communist Party is used as a stalking horse for influencing internal Australian policy on you know, foreign policy. Wow. But bigger issues that everybody is grappling with, like the South China Sea, which I think long term is a much more important issue that everybody is struggling with and how to sort of push back against China. Mm -hmm. So we've got 
multiple problems and I think we have to um, you know you, a lot of people in the business community will sort of say oh for God's sake fix it you know we fix this relationship it's too valuable for us but we have to I think move to a position where we have a relationship that accommodates tension yeah and I think that's not just Australia it's um, it's many other countries as well mm. I mean is there a sense that actually with China specifically they are a country where you can have a kind of sort of bipolar relationship they seem China seems to be a country that is happy to do business with pretty much anyone I mean there's a lot of tension at the moment um, between the US and China uh, but the levels of trade between the two countries are massively significant so is there an, an extent to which you they are a country that you can kind of rely upon for an economic relationship regardless of the kind of political wranglings that are ongoing well we'll see about that uh, the uh, you know I mean China yeah. has been willing to use uh, its economic power as a political lever right look what they did with South Korea when South Korea uh, erected an, uh, a US or allowed a US anti-missile shield to be put on South Korean territory uh, China exacted quite sharp uh, economic sanctions against South Korea yeah. uh, for that uh, and South Korea suffered the same happened with Norway uh, the same happened uh, with the Philippines at different times. It hasn't happened with Australia yet. It could. I think one of the reasons why it hasn't is because China has its hands full with Mr. Trump. Sure. And they don't really want to be seen to be beating up publicly on a democracy which, uh, you know, Australia in this case, which would argue it was simply moving to outlaw sort of um, foreign influence in its politics, simply having sort of a form of national security housekeeping. Why should China punish us for that? But it could happen uh, in the future. Uh, I'm not so sure. So the interesting thing about the economic relationship is that, and this applies to the US as well, mm. you know, the trade was once considered sort of ballast for the relationship. You know, the political relationship won't go off course because there's too much at stake for both sides. Right. And it's being recast these days as a vulnerability or exploitation. Okay. So far yeah. from being sort of ballast for the relationship, um, it's a reason to push back against China. Mm. Now, Australia and the US are very different. We have a very productive trading relationship with China. We have a large surplus with China. Uh, Trump sees it very differently. Mm. Uh, he sees a bilateral deficit with China as somehow a weakness or the fact that China's cheating it. I mean, obviously that's yeah. nonsense, Yeah. but that's how he sees it. But, but, but we have a very different relationship. Okay, yeah. Um, just coming back to the South China Sea, um, I was wondering, what, for, for those of us who are kind of ignorant of the geography maybe, what skin in the game does Australia have from that point of view? Is it just that China is threatening countries with whom you have good political relationships or is there actually a kind of tangible geographic impact to what they're trying to do in terms of your kind of sphere of influence or national security? Well, there's two aspects of that, I guess. One is the fact that, you know, the so-called rules-based order mm. Uh, don't ask me to define it because I'm still working out a definition in my head, but simply it's a system which has worked in Asia since the war. And the idea that China effectively can unilaterally say, well, this is all ours um, and we'll negotiate with you all one by one and work out a code of conduct, that doesn't seem like a very good thing just to acquiesce to. Yeah. I, I think, I guess there's an economic issue as well. All our trade, just about, a lot, much of our trade goes through the South China Sea. Now, people will say, well, China's not going to disrupt that because it's trade to China. 
But if China controls the South China Sea, that's kind of like, you know, the sort of region's throat, if you like. It gives it enormous power. Mm. And I guess that you, you wouldn't want to simply just hand that over without any form of dispute and the right. like. Right. Uh, China gets very angry at Australia making statements um, along with Japan and the US complaining about their compl uh, claims or pushing back on the um, the UNCLOS um, law of the sea ruling relating to the Philippines and the like. But I think they've grown now to expect uh, that will that will continue. Mm. So moving away from China for a, for a moment, I was wondering whether uh, we could talk a bit about Australia's relationship with the United Kingdom. Uh, obviously, history links us and the Commonwealth increasingly in the context of Brexit is always kind of is always kind of uh, alluded to by by politicians sort of saying Brexit's going to be great. It's an opportunity to re-engage with the Commonwealth and our Commonwealth allies and friends will will sort of make global Britain a success. But how do Australians see Britain? Is it is it a significant partner? Do we have a kind of special relationship or is it increasingly sort of less relevant to the concerns that Australia has? Well, Australia and the UK do have a special relationship. They have a very friendly relationship. People get along very easily. Um, <clears throat> lots of common values, common uh, language, and the like. Um, but I don't think it's. I don't think it's a relationship growing in importance. Of course, Australia would be happy to do a, a bilateral trade deal with the UK. But you know, if that happened, Australia would have many things it would ask for. Which you know, what the, sort of things? Well, I think much more free movement of people into the UK. Uh, for example, yeah. which is something that, that obviously with Brexit is uh, a very contested issue. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think we do have a, a, a very good relationship, but it's, you know, for Australia, I think I would argue it's very much in terms of geopolitical uh, importance, probably diminishing, mm -hmm. not meaningless. Uh, it depends what the UK uh, does or has the capacity to do uh, in Asia. You know, the UK is still a Security Council member, it's a nuclear power, it's still a large economy no matter what happens. Right. But I'm certainly the school who looks at the UK now, uh, a pragmatic, highly successful country, you know, and I can't even follow the Brexit debate anymore. And from my point of view, it looks like a disaster because it simply sucks all the energy out of the UK political system. And yes, and we'll have a trade deal, but I don't think that'll, that'll make much difference. Bringing it back to Asia, we've got, as you've spoken about, we've got this kind of balance between the US and China, and we don't know which way in terms of superiority that's necessarily going in the short to medium term. Um, but with sort of other Asian neighbours, is Australia trying to kind of play one off against the other? Is it trying to, um, is it trying to forge ties that will allow it to kind of do business kind of regardless of what's going on um, between those powers. Um, we recently published an article in our journal, International Affairs, which was looking at the relationship between Japan and Australia, um, particularly since Trump left, uh, uh, sort of condemned the Trans-Pacific Partnership to <laughs> or any US involvement. Um, so, so to what extent has that been going on and who are the key kind of regional allies that Australia um, values? Well, look, I look at that in two ways. In the economy, for example, trade, Australia obviously long term would like to be less reliant on China. Mm. Uh, it's never good to be reliant on a single country and it maybe is not good to be reliant on a single country you have political problems with. Mm. Uh, so you looked at <clears throat> Indonesia, India, for example, 
I might say all of those, none of those countries are nearly as dynamic as China, so it's not so easy to diversify. But that's a theme being discussed in Australia. The second, in security terms, I think there's a ton of stuff going on now. In the old system uh, in the Asia-Pacific, um, we had a kind of hubs and spokes system where the US was at the centre of the hub yeah. and the spokes were the US bilateral relations with all manner of different countries. The US often had much better relations with Asian countries than Asian countries had between themselves, mm. South, South Korea, Japan being the classic example. Sure. We're moving now where everybody is rapidly trying to find ways, new partnerships, alliances, tie-ups to hedge. Japan and India is maybe the most important. Japan, Australia, Japan, Vietnam. Japan has been the most active. Australia, Singapore. Australia, Vietnam. Vietnam, Singapore. Mm -hmm. There's all manner of countries looking to find ways to cooperate with each other, to give each other more options. And so we're, Australia is doing that, obviously, uh, and trying to find ways to you know, build closer ties with Asian uh, countries. But even if you add up all of Asia, and their, their sort of combined military might, it still doesn't nearly match against China. Sure. So uh, on top of that, I think, you know, Australia hopes the US will remain a, uh, an active, credible power balancer in, in the region because without the US, in the short term, there would be a vacuum because mm. China can't step in. In the long term, it would be China dominant and none of us quite know what that means. Just a last one then. If, if if you'll indulge me in some hypotheticals, if Prime Minister Turnbull put you in charge of foreign affairs tomorrow and just said you can do whatever you like, what would be the one thing that you would seek to change about Australia's sort of foreign policy stance? Well, I, we'd have more activism in Asia outside of China. We would pursue that strategy that I said uh, almost just a second ago might not work, that is economic diversification. We would continue a high immigration program, which is not that popular in Australia, but I, th I simply think we, you know, we need to, big, to be bigger in this region to stand up for itself and uh, uh, have the stature to be a good partner to others. I would continue a firm line with China, but maybe turn down the rhetoric, be a little bit more sly and cynical about it join up where we can, push back where we uh, want to. And I would seek to engage the US beyond Mr. Trump, yeah. the much maligned deep state, uh, which I think is there to be engaged, obviously, to make sure that, um, that they stay around. Richard McGregor, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. And that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. Thanks very much for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us because it helps other people find us too. And follow Chatham House on Twitter at Chatham House. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new episodes. Everyone else has gone on a summer break. Not Agnes and I. No, no. We're here. We're interviewing. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so look forward to that. And uh, <laughs> in the meantime, enjoy the, the rainy spell that has interrupted our heatwave. Oh, phenomenal. It's wonderful. I'm so excited about it. I'm, I'm, everyone's in a jumper. It's great. Yeah. Normality um, has been restored. Yes. Well, Ben, it's also it's great to have you back. Oh, thanks, know, Agnes. It's great to be back. It's you know, it was terrible doing this on my own. Don't leave again. <laughs> All right, we'll try not to. Yeah. But uh, tune in next week to find out if I do indeed leave. <laughs> <laughs>
God, we do keep you on tender hooks, yeah. don't we? Oh, it's God, thrilling. that's a cliffhanger. Yeah. <laughs> Tantalising. <laughs> do, do, do. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Magnus Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents. Yeah.